2: You're entering the News Vault from KCBS Radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder here in my hand. Well, nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here's your host, Stan Bunger.
0: And there we are. The News Vault is open. Welcome to the first edition of a brand new podcast. And let me tell you a little of the backstory, how this all came about. I've had a longtime interest in history and in the history of sound and radio news. For many years, I put together a feature that aired on radio stations nationwide called This Day in History that simply took a nugget of audio from the radio news archives and built a little story around it each day. That was then. This is now. In recent months... I spent a fair amount of time in the KCBS radio archives building a project called All News at 50 because it has been 50 years as I sit down to record this and a few months since KCBS became one of the CBS radio stations switching to the all news format. This all happened in 1967 and 1968. We put together a website, KCBSradio.com slash fiftieth, that brought back some of the archival nuggets that we unearthed from the KCBS all news era. But in fact, KCBS is a radio station that goes back to Charles Harold's experimental broadcast in San Jose in nineteen oh nine, and that leaves an awful lot of history to be mined and tapped and looked into over the years. So We began to do it. Some of these items were found right here on the radio station premises, but of course, like any business, KCBS has moved a few times and the boxes get tucked away and forgotten about. I have found reel-to-reel tapes, cassette tapes, DAT tapes, digital audio tapes, cartridges, which were another form of analog audio tape, and of course, in the more modern stuff, digital files. So the whole trick has been, in many cases, to isolate the information, figure out what it was, when it was broadcast, and also to digitize these old analog items. For example, reel-to-reel tapes. We're down to only one functioning reel-to-reel tape deck here in the radio station. It's not simply anything we have call for anymore. So what you're going to be hearing as we roll out the news vault from KCBS Radio are exactly those items, things that were either broadcast on KCBS or gathered by KCBS news over the years. In some cases, you'll hear uncut interviews that may not have been broadcast in full. In many cases, you'll hear live programs that were captured for posterity. In other cases, they may be special reports or sometimes what we call a telescoped version of live coverage where the commercial breaks and some other material was cut out to provide sort of a shortened highlight reel form of what was actually on the air. So that's the backdrop. As the weeks and months go down the line, I hope you'll enjoy dipping back into how radio news sounded at the time the actual events occurred. For this very first episode, we're going to deal with the student protests at San Francisco State University, then known as San Francisco State College, which made international news in the late 1960s. To a lot of people, the issues that would eventually lead to a student strike and a shutdown of the campus sort of began in the spring of 1967. That's when a group of students went to the president of the college to call for an end to the state college system's practice of revealing students' academic standing to the selective service. This was a hot-button issue in the era of the military draft and the Vietnam War. But many more issues would arise. By the way, the state college system at the time said, no, we're going to keep passing on this student information. The issues that would arise in the months ahead included racial tension between student groups, claims that the college administration was authoritarian and racist. A number of student groups issued lists of demands, tensions increased through a variety of incidents, and eventually a student strike was launched on November 6, 1968. A week later, the campus was closed down after several days of escalating confrontations between police and protesters. A few days after that, Governor Ronald Reagan said he wanted the campus reopened, and attempts to resolve the issues at a campus convocation failed, and that led the president at the time, Robert Smith, to resign. Enter S.I. Hayakawa. He was a professor of English at SF State, a noted semanticist named acting president at the college in late November 1968, and immediately ordered the campus closed. And then a week later, Hayakawa ordered SF State reopened. It was Monday, December 2nd, 1968. It would prove to be a fateful day. Striking students pulled a sound truck up to the corner of 19th and Holloway Avenues at SF State, outside the administration building, were urging other students to continue the strike. Hayakawa famously, or infamously, depending on your point of view, Climbed on the truck and tried to disconnect the speakers. In the in the process, the trademark tamashanter that he wore was pulled from his head, and it was the next day, December third, nineteen sixty-eight, when KCBS radio managing editor Jim Simon sat down for an extended interview with Hayakawa. At the time, the interim president of San Francisco stated, took place again the day after. Hayakawa had reopened the SF State campus amid the continuing student unrest. Listen carefully to this because you'll hear in this 50 year old nugget from the KCBS radio archives some of the very same issues that are being debated on college campuses these days. This
1: is Jim Simon, KCBS News Radio Managing Editor. San Francisco State College is still locked in turmoil. Its third president in less than a year is trying to find ways that a campus can survive when a loud minority resorts to violence to enforce its demands for change. To examine his plans, I talked extensively today with President S.I. Hayakawa in his office at State College. Here is our conversation. I think probably the first thing I want to know and most people want to know is uh, why you have uh, fled the uh, the sanctuary of being a professor of of great note in a f- particular field, and uh, suddenly find yourself laboring in another vineyard, uh, and you have
2: actually given up a lot of freedom, it seems to me. Yes, I know I have, but uh, I have been associated with uh, colleges and universities all my life, and I've had lots of theories about how things should be organized, and I've had a lot of c- criticism of how things are organized here. And uh, having been thinking about it very, very hard, especially during the crisis in President Smith's administration, when the when Dr. Dumpkin, the trustee, suddenly, out of a <laughs> out of clear blue sky, asked me if I would act, be acting president in view of the fact that he was announcing his re- that resignation, I just felt it my duty to accept.
1: What's the need here at San Francisco State? And when I say that, I mean... Uh, as far as the presidency is concerned, what are the qualities that are necessary to make this thing successful?
2: Well, right, th- th- these are not ordinary times, so far as student life is concerned. We have not only a radical element on campus of in, in the student body, we have constantly, floating he- through here, uh, something like a hundred or more non-student radicals who keep stirring things up, who make this a staging area for planning uh, disturbances in the community at large. And so it's not simply students here. It's an it's a easily upsettable campus. And this, uh, this uh, inflammable quality is due not so much to the student body as such, which is radical enough, good knows, goodness, goodness knows, you see. But, but in addition, there are the, totally irresponsible people who, who don't have the interests of the college at heart in any way, who are always on campus and always helping to stir things up. And so the first need is something that no president, college president ought to have, to have to worry about are people who aren't even students. All organized society rests upon certain implicit agreements that don't even need policing. For example, you know, if, you want a, if a number of men want to make a rush and take over a women's restroom, they can because there's no one there to prevent them. A bunch of women want to make a rush and, and and occupy the men's restroom. That can be done too. But we don't even keep police out there to prevent this from happening because nobody nobody wants to do this. Nobody nobody's tempted to do this. Now, under ordinary circumstances, uh, a professor's classroom is 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 sacred. We don't ordinarily have to put up put up any safeguard against a bunch of goons going in there and busting up the classroom and telling them it's dismissed and threatening to beat up anybody you know who interferes. Now. In other words, we're having all sorts of disruptions of a of a kind in which the ordinary, everyday, unspoken agreements, by means of which conduct is carried conduct of business, is organized, are being disrupted and destroyed. Uh, There's this spirit that seems to be going all over the world. You noticed in the papers the other day a group of provosts in Sweden have decided to interfere with Christmas shopping (laughs) by lying down in the aisles of department stores. Now nobody would think of doing that, even if he didn't like Christmas shopping. But suddenly we have people who are thinking in those terms of disrupting routines that are ordinarily available. So if you go on this principle, you can imagine a Boy Scout troop going into a hospital. Where it says, quiet, please, and raising hell. <laughs> and again, you would have to bring in security precautions that, under ordinary circumstances, you wouldn't dream of having to need. And this is exactly the situation in San Francisco State College. We have provocateurs here that ordinary academic means of discipline cannot reach, and therefore we have to have police.
1: I think one of the nagging questions in connection with that, however, is, since that is probably, and you'll admit this, is, is merely a temporary solution to a, to a problem, what is the long-range answer?
2: Well, I'm glad you raised that question because everybody is identifying with my use of the police with the, with uh, my entire philosophy. And uh, I believe with practically everybody else, I'm sure, that that society is, is best where no police are necessary, that where the unspoken agreements by means of which human beings get along together are fulfilled by everybody so well. I leave your wallet alone, and you leave my wallet alone. I leave your classroom alone, and I leave, you leave my classroom alone. See, if, if we go through these unspoken agreements and live up to them, then we don't need police. Now, a university is a kind of community in which reflection, exchange of ideas, study, research, thought, friendship, these are the things that the university is built upon. And here, these things are being disrupted, destroyed, by uh, an element that isn't intent upon destroying it. And so the police are simply an unfortunate necessity in a situation like this. And as soon as calm is restored, of course we're going to ask the police to go away. Now, as far as the deeper problems of education here are concerned. See, there are deeper problems. I mean, the Third World Liberation Front and the Black Student Union are symptoms of those very, very important problems. That is, we are undergoing right now, throughout all our underprivileged and and the poor, uh, a revolution of rising expectations, largely created, of course, and stimulated by television and other mass media that reach all people and tell them that that they needn't be satisfied with a very low standard of living and, and hopeless existence. Uh, television advertising especially tells everybody that they can get in on the culture Uh, you are an American you are entitled to eat drink and wear what other Americans eat drink and wear you are a member of the national community of Americans that's what every television set says to you implicitly and so everybody wants in on the action as the saying goes and so it's a very very legitimate desire that all of us who are immigrants and who isn't all of us who are immigrants came to America for that our parents in the old country were or persecuted minorities or whatever they were. Mm-hmm. Some of them were escaping the draft in the old country, and they came here. And uh, we were, as, as immigrants coming here, we, were, we didn't speak the language, we were poor, but America had this promise for all of us that we could work ourselves out of it and, and establish dignity and, and a chance to earn an honest living and, and uh, elevate ourselves to a respectable place in life, and this promise holds true for all Americans. It doesn't hold true well enough for, for example, the Mexican-American minority in California. It doesn't hold true well enough for Negroes and Puerto Ricans in in New York, and especially Negroes here. And so as a public state-supported institution, we have a tremendous responsibility to exactly these people to elevate the whole quality of life to help in in, in that task. Some of these problems remain unsolved. Some of them remain unsolved because of uh, excessive conservatism in our board of trustees, our legislature, or wherever the power lies. See, I've only been in this job a week, and so I don't know what's responsible for the lack of money to run this institution properly.
1: The Black Student Union and yeah. the other organizations that are uh, aligned with it as far as demands are concerned have come up with a list of yeah. things that they want you and the college yeah. and the trustees and everyone connected with it to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I think I've seen it Uh, printed, and I've heard it said that some of these are indeed valid. Yes. Which ones are and which ones aren't, as far as you know?
2: Well, let me put it this way, that the, the, the general idea that far more thought, money, resources should be poured into black studies, that idea is perfectly valid. Some of the more specific demands about hiring and firing the salaries of specific individuals. Those don't belong in a, in a set of policy demands, curricular demands. I think that should be straightened out to to put, you know, certain kinds of generalizations in one pile and certain particulars in another pile. If you throw them all together, you mix up the discussion, which is one of the reasons things have been so difficult with the BSU lately. Another thing that is that In the laying out of the ideas for black studies, not enough people, in my mind, have been consulted. That is, the BSU people have consulted largely themselves. I don't believe, in fact, not only I don't believe, I'm sure that uh, more important professional people, business people, educators in the larger Negro community have been consulted at all. In fact, the BSU tends to regard older Negroes in general who have been successful in business and the professions as Uncle Tom's. And this, I think, is a dreadful thing, because the older generation of Negro professional men, businessmen, statesmen, and so on, they worked very, very hard to get where they are. And those younger people wouldn't be where they are if it hadn't been for the enormous debt they owe to an earlier generation of Negroes, now over 40, 50, 60, you know, who spent their lives increasing the area of opportunity for the American Negro and enabling these kids to come to college and paying their way. And so in the BSU, to frame its demands for Negro education independent of the consultation and the ideas of the entire Negro community, this, I think, is arrogant and narrow and selfish, and it will lead only to an educational program that will not be adequate to serve their purposes. It will not do all the things that a vastly expanded program to increase opportunity for the Negro can achieve.
1: Now, I, as I understand it, you are willing to meet with these students, of or at course. least their representatives. Yes. Now, what's,
2: what's holding it up? Well, as of this moment, I've, after all, I've, I've been in this office only a week, and it's you know, only the second day of instruction, you know, <laughs> which has only begun uh, since assuming this office. I did issue an invitation to three representatives each from the Black Students' Union and uh, the Third World Liberation Front to meet with me yesterday at 4 o'clock, Well, they didn't turn up. Well, I'm not going to stop there, of course, but I have indicated at least my willingness to meet with them and uh, really start the the discussion.
1: In in my conversations with various students Mm -hmm. that I have run into on the campus and deliberately Uh, not because of their mode of dress or the way they walked or the way they looked or anything, but just at random, I've chosen to speak with them, uh, have been wondering out loud uh, about some kind of illegitimacy between, uh, as far as your relationship with Governor Reagan is concerned. Mm -hmm. Let's clear that up. What is your relationship with the governor?
2: There's none at all except that he called me up once one evening to say, I'm glad you're taking on the job. Uh, I think that uh, you've made a good start. He called me up last week to say that.
1: Has there uh, no correspondence between the two no, of you since
2: I, No, I, we haven't exchanged letters. Oh, I called him the other night again to say, well, things are going well so far, and these are the plans I've made for opening class Monday, and that's all. I've received no instructions for Governor Reagan or from the trustees or anybody else. See the legal responsibility of people in my position in the state requires that I keep at least the trustees and the governor informed of my plans but they don't require so that they can coordinate them with other plans obviously but I'm not taking orders from them because as the trustees said to me through Chancellor "Don, do it your way. So I said and there were no specific instructions whatsoever so I said I'll do it my way. Okay.
1: Now what are your plans for the future, personally? Do you want to stay in this office?
2: I don't think so, uh, unless it, unless the hours are shorter and leave and in future will leave me more time for fishing. <laughs> you know, before I took this job, I was on quarter time at San Francisco State College as a teacher in order to keep myself free for for writing, editing, lecture dates, and so on. And I did all my teaching in one seminar on Monday evenings. Now I'm here at. Uh, Unheard of hours in the morning, sometimes as early as seven o'clock, and staying all day and tossing my bed all night. Good gosh, this is a terrible job. But I don't, I don't know necessarily going to be this terribly indefinitely.
1: Uh, doctor, I, I think that I heard uh, yesterday or the day before perhaps a reference you made to what amounted to, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, the good old days at San Francisco State. Yes. Now. What's the difference between the good old days and today, Well, and is it necessarily bad?
2: Well, as I see it, the differences are bad. What I regard as the good old days, which are only four years ago after all, is, for example, when George Lincoln Rockwell, you remember the American Nazi, came here to speak see, over the objections of quite a few people. Well, anyway, he did come, and we filled the auditorium, and you know the nasty uh, anti-Semitic philosophy that George Lincoln Rockwell has, well, he g- g- he uh, gave it in front of all our people in the auditorium, packed auditorium, but our student body, in silent protest against his ideas, were all wearing yellow armbands with a Star of David as if we were all Jews, and Jews and non-Jews alike wore it. And then when Lincoln Rockwell stopped talking, they didn't applaud, some people who hadn't been instructed properly. Small scattering scanning of people applauded. But we all listened to him politely, gave him our full attention. See? And Mr. Rockwell himself was moved. He said, This is the finest audience I've ever had the opportunity opportunity to address. Now there is real freedom of speech. A man that most people regard as an outright nut, if not a very, very vicious influence in society. But here we listened to him We gave our silent protest, and then we let him go. And this is the free exchange of ideas, of radical ideas from the left or right or middle or far out or scientific or communistic or anything. I'd like to hear them discussed back and forth by men and women who, despite all differences of culture, race, color, religion, background, are willing to treat each other know, as human beings, and and really communicate, argue, discuss, you know, raise their voices, shout if necessary, but keep everything on a communicative level.
1: In your opinion, if George Lincoln Rockwell were to reappear at San Francisco State today, what kind of reception would he receive?
2: There are, there are about 50 or 100 <coughs> George Lincoln Rockwells right here now. The content of their philosophy may be different, but their their behavior is very, very much like that. That is, they have absolutely no use for democratic processes. How is this displayed? Well, for example, it's a well-known fact that student government here uh, is um, vitiated at source by the fact that um, when there are elections, a number of radical students deliberately line up in front of the ballot boxes to prevent people from voting, those who have only ten minutes to vote in between class, so that the the results of elections are almost always a very small vote and and going heavily towards the radical side. And this is the result of, of deliberate interference with the electoral process on the part of radical students. And I charge this very, very seriously. And this is the kind of thing that's been going on. And so students stay away from elections because, you know, it doesn't get them anywhere. And I want to speak again for the Committee for an Academic Environment, and from last year, the students to keep campus open. We want to restore real democracy to this campus so that students can vote. I mean, they're, they're a referenda, but they don't get a chance to vote much of the time under present circumstances. They limit the number of ballot boxes, and they stand over those ballot boxes or line up in front of them and obstruct access to them. Now, if we have really free elections in this in this campus, I think we can restore democracy and a really representative student government. We haven't got it now. For example, the president of the student body, Russell Bass, was announced in the newspapers this morning as having, or yesterday as having, urged people to support the strike. Nevertheless, notice that attendance at this school yesterday was from se- from 80 to 90 percent effective according to a reporter from your own network. And in other words, something like eighty to ninety percent of the students did not support the strike. They came to class in spite of the fact that the student body president told them to support the strike. Now how representative of a student body president is that man? see? There's definite proof that there's something rotten in the whole electrical system that p- permits a man like that to say he represents the student body as its president. And one thing that uh, Everybody wants to avoid, radical faculty as well as radical student, is an honest election and an honest referendum. I want to see to it that these things are restored. And when we do restore democratic processes on this campus, I think an enormous amount of sanity will will be restored at the same time.
1: Students are influenced considerably by faculty. At this campus, Mm -hmm. and I'm not asking you to point out this professor or that doctor, but I mean generally speaking as you look over the faculty, just how guilty is it, or are they?
2: who are involved in this. There are quite a few faculty that are extremely, extremely guilty. That is, that is, they professionally pride themselves, for example, on an anti-establishment stand. But you know, so many of these faculty with professorial rank and tenure are the establishment, and they're trying to destroy their own institution. They're trying to blow up the house they live in by encouraging their students in this powerful anti-establishment point of view, which the students pick up as the fashionable, the right, the in kind of attitude to have. So if you make sneering remarks about Governor Reagan or Governor Brown, for that matter, any governor or any president or any board of trustees or any chancellor, it's a warmly applauded all around, because that's the right thing to do, to attack. A central authority figure well this is a lot of nonsense but it's being inculcated by a number of our professors I call them middle-aged adolescents who insist on taking this puerile uh, stand obviously authority is not always right and obviously it's not always wrong either and besides any kind of society has to revolve around some kind of organization and any kind of organization has to have a chairman a president a governor or something to take an all-out stand against any kind of authority whatsoever is simply to destroy the institutions that a civilized society has to have to function.
1: It may still be a little bit early for you to assess Mm -hmm. uh, what the outcome is going to be, but still, uh,
2: where are we? I don't know, but I think things will be improved today over yesterday, and I think that things will be improved tomorrow over today. I have every hope of this. Because, you know, the, the good sense of the majority of students and the majority of faculty is really, really asserting itself. I have this evidence in phone calls and messages to me and memoranda to me from department heads, deans, and so on and so on. At heart, this institution is powerful, it is very, very wise, it has wonderful people in it, wonderful students and faculty in it, and at heart, we, it is a strong, good place. Not with, you know, hundreds of famous scholars like the University of Berkeley, but with hundreds of able, able and dedicated teachers with lots of experience and uh, lots of warm human sympathy for the kind of problems that uh, students here have. And the students here are not rich children after all. They're not these, these the children of, of um, upper middle class on the whole. I mean, so many of our, 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 our students are working people. They're adult people. And they're, they're working their way through school. We they have firemen and bartenders and, and taxi drivers who, who go to school here. And they're eager to continue their education. There are all, all sorts of children of minority groups. And they go to school here, and they want to pursue their education. And they haven't time to mess around with agitation and propaganda. And, Disruption of classes. Now, when a teacher says, when a teacher urges his own students to support the strike, notice he is urging his students to discontinue their education, because a student striking is striking only against himself. See, if a worker strikes against General Motors, he's trying to hurt General Motors, but if and he gets the advantage of not of not working, but well, when a student gets the advantage of not working he is he is perpetuating his own ignorance which he came to this school to cure and so a student strike can only hurt himself and when his professor urged him to do this he is showing absolute professional irresponsibility
1: well how do you um, answer then uh, uh, individuals who on this campus have said that you were wrong in reopening the campus
2: well i can just say, say by the end of this week you know whether or not I am wrong Remember? Obviously, I'm right up to this point. I'm right for 80 to 90 percent of the student body right now, and for something like uh, like 90 percent of the faculty is more than 90 percent of the faculty came to work yesterday. No? In fact, <laughs> someone said that faculty attendance was even higher than under normal circumstances because <laughs> I had made, issued such a firm statement that they had to be there.
1: The uh, you're looking then to the end of the week I'm as l- as a guidepost
2: I'm looking at now from now to to the Christmas vacation as a guidepost I think that we'll really have it made by then
1: You have heard a conversation with the interim president of San Francisco State College Dr. S.I. Hayakawa Our extended discussion took place this morning in his office at the college The interview was edited to comply with time requirements This is Jim Simon KCBS News Radio managing editor <laughs>
2: Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio.